0: Samuel, uh, the title of the sermon is Using God, and uh, what I want to do is just paraphrase the story for you, because it's kind of long, and it's a little nuanced, and so I'm not going to read it out, and it also has a bunch of names that are hard to pronounce in it, too, so it's one of those passages you don't really want to read out loud, so I'm going to sum up the plot points, and then we'll dig into a few sections as we go, but here's what happens in this passage, is uh, uh, Israel is sinning in the eyes of the Lord, as they you know, often do in the Old Testament, and they enter into a conflict with the Philistines, as tends to happen a lot in First uh, and Second Samuel, and they suffer a massive loss in a battle. It's just a really, really bad one. And so what they decide to do uh, in the face of this first loss is they go get the Ark of the Covenant, which is where Moses put the Ten Commandments. It's kind of where the presence of the Lord would have dwelt at that time. It's very, very important to them. And so what they thought is they'd go and bring the ark into battle with them as some kind of, I guess, good luck charm or something. And God never commanded them to do this. They just had this idea all on their own. So they bring the ark into the the battle, and then what's, what's really interesting in the story is the enemies. The Philistines hear about this somehow. And uh, they, they say, oh, a god has entered the camp of the, of the Israelites. And they actually get afraid. The Philistines are like, oh, no, they've gained the upper hand. But what's really fascinating about this passage is that the Philistines rally. They rally, and some general of Philistine stands up and goes, we can do it. And then they do. They beat the Israelites. Fascinating. You kind of get this little window. It kind of reminds me of uh, the new set of Star Wars and The Force Awakens, where like it's from the perspective of a stormtrooper from the very beginning. Sorry, nerds. Oh, this is for you. But it's like this weird moment where you like get into the enemy, and it's about the enemy for a second, and they rally and win. And for a second, you're like, oh, go, go Philistines, I guess. Like that's that's impressive, because they were shivering and like, oh no. But they win. In the process, the Ark of the Covenant gets stolen. Super bad. Israel mourns. Uh, The current prophet of the time that we talked about in weeks previous, his name is Eli. He hears about it. Both his sons die, who were the ones protecting the Ark. Uh, He falls over and breaks his neck and dies because he's so distraught. He's a big dude. And he falls over and dies. Uh, Then what happens is the Ark gets taken back into the Philistine Uh, cities and the ark just wreaks havoc and they try to put the ark with all of their other gods they're called like Baals and Ashtaroth and what happens is they put them in this tent and then every time they come back the next morning all the other uh all the other gods and idols are like laying down and they've all fallen over and then they put them all back up and then the next morning they come back and they're all fallen over again and then people are getting sick in these camps and they hold on to it, the, uh, the, uh, the Philistines hold on to it for like seven months, it says, because they just really, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a big sign of victory if you have the, your main enemy's source of, you know, holiness and the thing they care about most. So they try to hang on to it, but eventually they just get so frustrated with the stupid thing that they bring it back to Israel, and then Israel celebrates, and then they, you know, treat it properly and put it away somewhere. So it's a really interesting, if this was like a kid's book, it would be called Everyone Learns a Lesson, I think. <laughs> and uh, it's just everyone learns something, and it's, uh, I don't know, maybe that's what it would be in the storybook Bible for kids. But it, there's a lot going on here. So what I want to do is I want to just uh, make four observations of the, of the text, four observations of the story, and then ask us, us a question after each one that has implications in our own lives that we could, yeah, glean something from. So the first, the first observation is the real reason for their defeat at the beginning was their lack of repentance. So it's a common theme in the Old Testament where God has only ever been looking for the purity and righteousness of his people. He's never been after military victory necessarily as a primary objective or anything else. Uh, purity and repentance is the thing that God consistently calls for, like be pure. He gives them all of these uh, rules to help them purify themselves, and he lays out very detailed instructions and and sends prophets to say it over and over and over again. If there's one thing that you can sum up all Old Testament's prophets with, if you could sum them all up, it's return to God. (laughs) Be pure, return to him. It's just... Ad nauseum. Sometimes it's hard to see in all those Old Testament prophets because there's lots of visuals and confusing things, but at the end of the day, they're all saying the same thing, in essence. So what they should have done in the face of the vast army attacking them is they should have returned to purity. They know full well that this is what God has instructed them to do. This is the plan for any enemy that they would have is be pure and I will save you. That's God's continue. But I can, I can kind of resonate them with, it, with them, right? Like you see a vast army and repentance isn't the first thing you think of when you see circumstantial issues. I don't know about you, but it's not what I think of. So they should have abolished abuses. They should have reestablished a pure faith. They should have been tearing down the idols that they were worshiping in that time. So I'm going to read a few Old Testament prophets here just to prove it. Um, This is Joel uh, 2, verse 13, and Hosea 14, verse 1. Just to give you some idea, so I'm making this up, that this is what what Old Testament prophets are asking for over and over again. Joel says this, And render your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. Hosea says this, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. So over and over and over again, In the face of no matter what is facing this group of people, God's cry is always, purify yourselves and return to me, and rid yourselves of iniquities. And I really laid it out clearly for you. And it's the thing they often choose last. So the question I think we could ask ourselves in the face of this is, uh, do do you look inward in the face of crisis? Like when you see a vast army, whatever that would be for you, something circumstantial, something in the world around you, is your first reaction to go, how's my heart? How's my idolatry? How's my, is God in his rightful place? That's a hard, that's a hard decision to make in those moments because everything in me wants to take matters into my own hands and do things that make sense to me. But that's never been God's primary objective. So uh, what I want to read is, is I want to read a, chunk of scripture today, but I want it to be from Psalms, and it's Psalm 51, and it's, and it's a chunk, but uh, this speaks, I think, of God's heart, uh, and so this is David speaking in the Psalms, and this is the person that eventually ends up king as a result of all this Samuel business, and this is the heart of the leader that God is looking for. This is the this is the kind of person who should be king over Israel. He screws up in other ways, but his heart is good. And God said that David's a man after his own heart. So let's listen to David's heart, who winds up leading these people. And he seems to grasp this concept of repentance being his main job. And purity and exalting God to his rightful place and righteousness being the thing that he is actually his mantle. So... Read Psalm 51. You can close your eyes, and I don't know, I was reading this through, and it just struck me. It's such an amazing prayer. Um, Listen to this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only. Have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Rejoice me, uh, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are my God, my savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praises. You do, this, is, this is the important one. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. So this is the heart of a man after God's own heart. I think that's profound. And it's in stark contrast to what the Israelites decided to do in this story. It wasn't about... God, look at, look at me, you know, like what is, what is, what's going on in my heart? Restore unto me my salvation. Cleanse me of my iniquity, save me. It's a very trusting, kind of passive in a way, it's probably the wrong word, but it's, it's, it's letting God take care of stuff. Like you just do justice with me in my own heart. This is the kind of person God wants to lead his people. So instead, and this would be observation number two, the Israelites don't do this sort of thing. They don't have this kind of heart. And they turn to, uh, to, second observation, they turn to speedy, non-repentant kind of solutions. They, they, they do things actually in the way that the world does them. So this is what's fascinating about this time, is that because Israel is in this not serving the Lord kind of phase, they've begun to sort of take on these customs of the Philistines and the other countries around them, which have a lot to do with ceremonial things idols carved things Uh, it would be very normal for the Philistines to bring their gods into battle as luck charms to fulfill their own desires that would be a very normal thing for the countries around Israel to do God never commanded this that wasn't the way that he wanted his Ark to be treated but Israel goes okay we have an idea in the face of this defeat wouldn't it make sense if we started just bringing God into our battles with us. And that would be a very logical conclusion that they would draw. Because they're beginning to be influenced by the world around them. And they're beginning to worship the things of the world around them. Not, a, not the pure God of Israel who's anointed them to carry his mantle of, uh, you know, his promise to. They forsake that and go, no, we're just going to be like the world around us. We'll do those sorts of things. So bringing the ark would have made actually tons of sense but God doesn't want to be treated as a means. This is the problem. Is the objective there became, well, we should probably win the war. And so then you jump to speedy, worldly solutions. And God's like, oh, I'm not trying to be your good luck charm. I'm, uh, I'm actually trying to cleanse you. I have a different objective. So I've, I was really impacted by this because I'm like, well, how often do I treat God in the same way that the world would treat their idols? As ways to fix something in my life. And uh, I, it's, it's really, <laughs> I, I just realized how much I do this all the time. And go, God, I'd like you to set me free from this. So I'm going to treat you as a means to an end. And uh, so the question we can ask ourselves is, is God a, a means to a personal end for you? Is he a means to a personal end? I don't think he intended to be that. And uh, so I just think about my own life and I'm like, sin actually has tons of benefits. We talk about this in our church a lot. It has tons of benefits and it works for a second. It works for a little bit. And if if the goal is personal, selfish satisfaction or fulfillment, temporary and, you know, nearsighted, but it, has, it accomplishes a thing. And so you think about this story. The Israelites bring the ark into the camp, and what it says is a loud cheer rose from the Israelites. They bring the ark in and go, look, God's on our side. <laughs> they're totally skipping their, all their hearts. They're not addressing their idols. It doesn't cost them anything, but they go, look, the ark's here in the camp. And a huge cheer sounds in the Israelites. They're, they're rallied to, you know, I don't know what it is. They felt encouraged. I could imagine it. Like, look. This might work. It struck it struck fear in the enemies in the enemy as well. Seemingly, this is going well, and then they get steamrolled, anyways. So I think about this. I I uh, I don't know. I don't know if I believe this all the time. I don't know if I believe that God isn't just a means to my own ends. But then I think about verses like, uh, "You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies." I'm like, okay, it's not. Uh, It's not idolatry, that's for sure. I don't want to have dinner with my enemies. But that's somehow, God's like, hey, I'm going to set you free. Have dinner in the presence of your enemies. I'm like, oh, no. Mm -mm. I'm going to bring the ark into battle because I don't want to die. I don't don't want to die. So you see how we can resonate with the Israelites? They're so helpful, hey? These people. A third observation is... uh, and this is kind of fascinating, is if we, if we treat God this way, he lets it run its course. Like he lets, our treat, he lets us treating him as an idol run its course. Like they lose. Which I just find fascinating. Um, so why? Why? This is what I feel like happens uh, when we do this, is stay with me on this because it's a little tricky. When we treat God as an idol to do things for us, I think he lets it run its course because we end up in direct conflict with the other idols and nothing is different about the kingdom. Nothing's different about Jesus. And so here, I'll explain what happens. Is I run into this all the time as we go, uh, maybe you've had a conversation like this with someone who maybe doesn't know Jesus. And I say, no, no, Jesus works. My life is better. And then they kind of go, I'm fine. I work. My rulership works. I'm totally fine. And then you go, no, no, no. Uh, Let me explain. Uh, I'm happier, I'm more fulfilled. And these are all true things, okay? I'm not saying they're untrue. I'm just saying this is what we lead with a lot of the times. Like, don't worry, he comes, he comes through and everything's amazing. And, uh, and it's totally worth it. I know there's a little bit of sacrifice here or there, but in the end, I feel amazing. And I, this is totally the right way to live for this 60 years or whatever it is. It's better for you. I, how, I do evangelism so often by saying, it's better for you to follow Jesus. I know that it is. Like, I believe that in my heart of hearts. But I'm, I'm leading with something else. And what happens is, is, is you end up with direct conflict of like, okay, so you have an idol. Oh, you have an idol tr- that you're using to try to make your life better. So do I. And they're just in direct opposition. And then it's kind of like, pick your poison. Do you know what I mean? Religion is, leads, doesn't lead to God any more than rebellion does. So we have this competing value set, and everyone's just trying to get ahead and beat this war. But God's doing something totally different. He's like, no, no, no. Let's look at the heart of my servant David. Look how he leads, and he's, and he's God. Look at me. Like you're worthy of praise. Take away my iniquity. I want to be humble. And all of a sudden, this humility begins to change the whole discussion. And we're not just battling value sets and what we can get the most out of life. And to be honest, Jesus is a tough sell if it's just about personal benefit. In this life, anyway. If you think eternally, it sways the vote. But uh, if you think about today and what makes you happiest today... I highly recommend idolatry and sin. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? He so it works wonders. But uh, God's trying to give us a heavenly kingdom and a, and a, and a different, a whole other playing field. And the Israelites can only just ever seem to see their enemies. Granted, I give them a little credit, because they have swords and stuff, okay? So, uh, like, I, we ha- we, it's a little different for us. I think we have less excuses than they do personally. <clears throat> so... It's fascinating, right? Because the chant works. The chant works. Bringing the ark into into the camp works. And then the Philistines go, well, I guess they're over here. The Philistines go, we can do it. Our gods can win. We also have one of those in our camp. So let's roll the dice. It's like, oh my gosh, that's such an amazing critique on us as the church. Right? Because the world goes, we well, let's see what happens. <laughs> I'm I valid. The, the, the Israelites don't seem that different. They brought this box into the camp and are all worshiping this box now. We do the same thing. I don't get why they're. I don't. They're the same as us, and we have more numbers. <clears throat> so uh, we have to be careful what well, we promise Jesus is trying to do i think and i'm preaching so it's it's tension-filled right because does he long to set us free from our enemies and give us joy in our lives of course like he just longs to bless us because he's a loving father who walks with us and there's all of that is true too but if we're just looking at this text i think he's trying to teach us a lesson so let's read 1 samuel 7 this we're skipping ahead a few chapters this is the first time samuel speaks and this is his, in, this is kind of his intro into the, uh, it's very indicative of what his mandate is going to be for the, for, the, for the country. And this is kind of his first words to the nation as a result of this conflict we're talking about today. Uh, Samuel says this. And Samuel said to all the houses of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you Out of the hand of the Philistines. So Israel put away all their foreign gods, and they served the Lord only. That's their plan to defeat the Philistines, is to put away their other idols. Illogical. But that's what the prophet said to do. So God has a different primary objective, and it's to return to him. See, it says, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away all your foreign gods. That's the plan. So return to him. Jeremiah, another Old Testament prophet, says it this way. I will give them a heart to know me. Like, this is Old Testament, okay? This is Old Testament stuff. It's not all just battles. Like, God's heart is really shining through here, through these prophets. I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord. They will be my people, and I will be their God. For they will return to me with their whole heart. It's not different than today. This is what he's always been after. Return to me with your whole heart. So the question becomes, what can we, you know, what can we promise uh, people, ourselves? I think we can promise God's nearness and his closeness because his objective is to return to him. And then we get to trust him to set us free. And sometimes life has suffering in it. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. Sometimes it doesn't totally come through. And sometimes it seems like the enemy wins in this life. And it doesn't all make sense. And there's a, there's a, there's a quote I, di- I didn't put in here. I'll try to remember it. It's from Jean something. doesn't matter who he is. I just like the quote. Um, it says that God doesn't promise to take away suffering or even explain it. He came to fill suffering with his nearness. which I just really love that. He didn't come to take away earthly suffering or even really explain it. It's not even his primary goal but he came to fill it with his nearness because he knows that in suffering is where we could be the near, most near. And it's when the enemy's on the doorstep and we have a choice whether to worship him or worship ourselves, otherwise known as idols. That's the moment. That's the moment. So the question for us as a result of this observation is are we desiring the outcomes God desires? Are you desiring the outcomes God desires? Because he desires nearness. He desires nearness. I think that uh, something has to be said about the last part of this story and it kind of doesn't really fit. It didn't feel like it fit at the end, uh, but it totally does because then the ark gets kind of stolen and it goes and wreaks havoc in the Philistines, right? So the fourth observation is God still shows himself to be undefeated. He can't be defeated. And even if we failed and don't worship him, he still's going to win. And the visual of the tent of the, all the other gods like melting and falling over in that tent is just so like real to me. Because God gets totally, like think about how abandoned God is in this moment. You know, if we can make him a, a really personal look at, look at his heart. My people just treated me like a wooden God. So much so that they got wiped out. My Ten Commandments got stolen. Where I've chosen to dwell and with my people, now I'm in some tent, stacked against a wall with a bunch of other wooden gods. Like he just—he's just put away in some corner, like uh, the same because his people treated him that way, and. And then he's like, sorry, I'm still going to win. Sorry, I'm still God. I'm still in charge. And I'm so glad that he's all-powerful and not some slave to our obedience. Like, he is God. We worship Yahweh. (laughs) I am that I am. Who made man's mouth kind of stuff. And it's just a good reminder at the end of this. Because sometimes I think I have a habit of when I preach, we make it so much about like, hey, these are the two things you can choose to do. You know, That's helpful, right? We get to chew on a thing like, oh, am I going to worship God in this way or that way? And we all walk away going, good thought. Um, But I think in this story, it's very important to know God's going to (laughs) win. And even if the ark gets stolen and we treat him like that, he's very committed to the nearness of being near to us. He's very committed to it. So, you know, segue, this is where Jesus comes in. But it's like, I am bigger. Everyone bows. Everyone will bow to my sense of justice and love because I have the right to define it. And then he's, I will achieve my objective of being near to my people. Okay, you wanna stack me up up against a corner? You wanna treat me like just another idol? Fine, I'll die for you. I'll send Jesus my one and only son, to make a way for your nearness. I will still win. I will still win. I'm that committed to a nearness with you. It's not even, we don't even get to choose between like, oh, what benefits us the most. He's like, "Mm, I'm gonna make so that it's inescapable. It's inescapable that I will be close to you if you would like it. If you would worship me, it's unavoidable. Which brings up a whole bunch of really awkward things like judgment. Because he is so loving that he must win. He's so loving that he must win. So it's, uh, the question is, are you one who desires his nearness? Do you have the same objectives that God has? Is this your heart's desire? Because I can treat Jesus like this all the time. I can treat him like someone who makes my wishes come true and then I blame him when he doesn't and work the way that I understood it. So the offer this morning is to, uh, is to come to Jesus for kind of two reasons. The first is that he is the way to experience closeness. He is the way that all our iniquities are blotted out like David prayed for. It's a very prophetic prayer, hey? God, would you please do all this? Please take away my iniquities. Please would you, would you, would you, would you, would you bury them? Would you have them not matter? Would you help me to be repentant? It's almost like David's prayer in Psalm 51 is answered by Jesus in some ways, hey? It's a long time previous. But David was kind of like a Christ-like figure in the Bible. There's many Christ-like figures who exhibit Christ-like things. Namely, in this case, humility. And then God goes, all right, Jesus is going to be the better David and make a way for you to be close to him. So that's number one. Is, uh, I... I don't know what's gonna happen when we worship God the way that he, I don't know what's gonna happen in your life if you worship him the way that he wants to be worshiped. I can't promise you anything except, close, except a nearness and a closeness and a relationship with the person that you were designed to know. I know I've said this before, but if we think of yourself as a, I don't know, like a computer, the operating system is the Holy Spirit in Jesus' presence, like it, it, it is useless without it. Like he did create you, he did assemble all the pieces The operating system of a computer is not a bonus aspect. It doesn't work without it. I have to remember that all the time. Did you choose Jesus today? It's like a silly question. It's, It's the, it is my heart longing even if I don't recognize it as being so every day. So that's reason number one, is I think it actually does benefit you a ton. I don't know about your circumstances, but I do know it's what you were designed for. And I can personally attest to the fact that nothing even comes close to a nearness with God and a relationship with him, no matter what the circumstance, no matter what my enemies are saying, yes, I will have dinner in the presence of them because it doesn't matter. Are you sitting across the table? I'm fine. I know that's sensational, but it really is true. And the second reason that we can have a come to Jesus moment is he's gonna win. And he will be near his people. And he will make, he will Do everything that is required to make that possible. And if you have chosen not to receive forgiveness of sins by his shedding of his blood on the cross to make a way for all that, then all of a sudden you get in the way of his desire to be close to the people he created. And that has to be dealt with. It just does. So I want to say now, God, deal with me, be it ever so severely. Now deal with me now because you're king on the throne and there's no two ways about that and I can ignore you and at the end of the day all the other gods are going to bow down you won't stand for it ultimately and I'm so grateful that you don't and I'm sorry for resenting judgment I'm sorry for resenting repentance it's your heart's cry so that's my prayer for us this morning do you see how Good old fashioned First Samuel, Old Testament stories are just so indicative of our own lives and how much we can resonate with the Israelites. Yeah. And to be honest, I really meant what I said. I think they have more excuses than we do. <laughs> I really do. I'm gonna invite the worship team back up and uh, I'd like to pray for us in this regard. And um, Tara will come up in a second and give us some ways that we can respond to this. But I think that this is an opportunity for us this morning of going, God, are you, are you an idol that I'm using for my own objectives? Uh, even if it's working for you that's not even his heart he's probably just being kind to you for some reason <laughs> but go no, God deal with me so father um, we just come before you as a, as, a, as a people longing to know your heart and we want to be close to you and we want to be near to you and we don't We don't want to settle for a version of you. Father, let us not settle for some version of you. Let us not treat you as a good luck charm. Let us not treat you as something to win our own battles that we decided were important. But help us to have a heart after you. David's heart was after you. And as a result, he had to look inward and go deal with my iniquity, make me humble. And so God, we say this morning, humble us. Would you come against our pride? Would you come against our selfishness? Because it's killing us. Yeah, so Father, deal with our pride, deal with us. Make us humble. And we pray that that place would be just rushed in with your love. And we thank you for all, we just saying that our fear doesn't stand a chance in your love. And it is scary. It's scary to see the enemy and go, no, I'm gonna trust you instead. But your love casts out fear. So Father, I pray that your love would rush in to our humble hearts that are open and soft to receive what we were designed for. In Jesus' name, amen.